It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you, sir, and a pleasant uh, good afternoon to you for this Tuesday, 23rd of January. Hard to believe we're a week away from the conclusion of the first month of the year. Amazing how time flies when you're having fun. I hope you're having fun, and I hope you're going to enjoy today's show. We've got some great information for you. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by John Zimrick. John is an expert and will give some insight and information to you pertaining to how to locate the best college for your son or daughter. While you might think here in January that's premature to be thinking about where they're going to be headed come September or late August, well, the reality is it's a very competitive field out there. And so if you have plans for your son or daughter to go on to a two- or four-year college after high school, selecting the right college, the best fit at the right price, not all that easy. So John's going to offer some insights a little bit later on in today's program. We're also going to dive into a topic that ought to be of great interest to all of us at a couple of levels. We've been watching with much horror the story that has unfolded in Southern California with David and Louise Turpin and the house of horrors that they ran, almost worse than a uh, Nazi prison camp at some levels, um, in the uh, endangerment and imprisonment of their 13 children. This raises questions not only in society about how can we as society do a better job to protect children who are most vulnerable, but then, too, for all of us that are baby boomers, 80 million, 10,000 of us every day reaching retirement age, um, the issue of proper care for the elderly in our country is a major question, too, especially given the fact that in the last five years, fully half of all retirement community centers, these are long-term facilities, things of that sort, over half of them in the United States in the last five years have been cited for violations of neglect or abuse. And while you might think, well, no big deal, my parents are long gone or they're healthy, (laughs) the day is going to come when those very same retirement communities, we're going to call it home. So thinking about this issue of protecting the most vulnerable at both ends of the age spectrum in our country, an important thing, we're going to be joined by professional guardian Fernando Gutierrez a little bit later on in tonight's program to talk about the realities of guardianship. And in particular, if you have an elder loved one or a at-risk child in your family and the issue or the topic of guardianship is something that's come up, then the information contained in our discussion with Fernando today will be equally important for you. We've got Michael Bennett hanging out in the KFAX Traffic Center, so we'll keep you abreast of what's going on traffic-wise throughout the program tonight. And as things get underway, let me introduce to you our first guest. As we mark the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision, uh, just yesterday, in fact, that legalized abortion in America, uh, we recognize the fact that there are nearly 60 million victims of abortion. Those, of course, are the children whose lives have been taken. But there's a whole other set of victims of abortion that rarely get talked about. There's not much news about them on the uh, evening news. There aren't any clear statistics. And yet we know 
the, the impact of abortion and the sense of the post-traumatic stress that comes along with it is reality for millions of American women. In fact, many women are victimized multiple times over, not only by the abortion industry, but by outright denial of the impact that that experience has on life, on relationships, um, multiple layers, multiple levels. Sharon Landis joins us. Sharon is the founder and executive director of Healing Tears, a ministry that focuses on helping those dealing with post-abortion challenges. And Sharon, great to have you on the program. Thank you, Craig. Happy to be there. This is being talked about more and more, but still at a level. It doesn't get the kind of attention that it necessitates when you consider the number of women and men, for that matter, who are uh, post-abortive, who are dealing with the trauma of it, and yet in spite of those realities, we just don't hear as much about this. Why is that? Well, it really is something that we don't talk about. It's not being talked about really more and more, um, and it's very hard to find anybody that wants to talk about it. So you have to be, you have to look for it, or you have to know, hear somebody tell a story about it, or talk. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to talk about, and it's hard to find people to talk about it. So we um, try to educate and try to work with churches, but it's a slow process. Sharon, let's talk a bit about the educational process. A big part of it, I suppose, from a ministry standpoint, is just making those that are in a position to provide care uh, aware that this is a reality for people. For sure. I think a lot of people don't even believe that 30 to 40 percent of the women in their churches have had abortions. They don't even want to believe it. They don't think that's true, but it really is true. It's a fact. 30 to 40 percent, and especially in California, which has one of the highest abortion rates in the country, um, we have 30 to 40 percent of our women around us have had abortions, but nobody talks about it. And, so, and, and, and it, we seem to be in denial, not only in terms of the sheer impact of the numbers, but also in terms of the reality of the impact. I, I've got to believe for every woman regardless of how she is either going into receiving an abortion, quote-unquote, willingly or has been manipulated into it or lied into it, either by uh, boyfriends or family members or um, by, quite frankly, the propaganda of the abortion industry that just sees this as doing business, I've got to believe that some level there is an awareness of the, the emotional scarring um, when a woman deep now and again, in spite of all the propaganda, knows that this is not just a blob, but that this is actually a baby, and if given a chance, could grow up to be a human being and participate fully in society just like the rest of us. And so that, that reality has got to come home at some levels, and if they can't give a name to it um, outright, the 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 impact that it has on every aspect of life is very real nevertheless, isn't it? It is. It definitely impacts your life greatly. I think more women today don't think it's a blob. They know it's a baby. They know they're getting an abortion, but they don't do the, they don't stop and think. So a recent, last year, one woman um, contacted me shortly after she'd had an abortion, and she just found out she was pregnant, and she just went and had an abortion within a week. And then immediately, she didn't regret it. She wished she hadn't done it. She didn't know why she had done it. 
and she was just almost suicidal. She was very, very sad, very broken, and so she went to a church, not her own church, she went to another church, and went up and asked one of the pastors in that church, told her what she'd done, and she wanted to know if she had any help, if there was any help. Well, that church that she went to just happened to know about Healing Tears, so they put her in contact with us, or us in contact with her. And so we were able to talk with her and finally get her into a group, and she completed the group last at the end of the year, and she just said that that group saved her life. I mean, she knows it saved her life. She was able to reach the anniversary date when the baby would have been born, and she had peace. But most women don't do that. She was very courageous to reach out and ask for help, and she happened to ask at a church who could offer her help. And there, I guess that really goes to the the core of this message, and that is that 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 is an instance of ministry taking place and a life being saved, literally, uh, that was less purposeful than it should have been in terms of the overall objectives of the church, of the body of Christ, of what we should be doing to reaching out to people that are hurting from a whole variety of issues, broken relationships, abortion, substance abuse, the whole nine yards. Now, that said, um, you've got a very special panel presentation coming up on Thursday. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it's an educational presentation, a post-abortion recovery panel um, with um, five men and women. I think we're going to have five. The one of them, I think, came down with the flu, but hopefully she'll make it. And they just these women and men tell, they all answer the same question, but they tell, using their story, they educate the audience about abortion, how they made their decision, why they made their decision, how it impacted their life, and how they came to know that they needed to be healed and set free. And so it's really powerful. It's, um, it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does in our lives and sets us free. And it's very, um, well, it's just it's one of the best testimonies I've ever seen. And it's not really a testimony. It's more of an education. But they use their testimonies to bring out all the facts that... Um, everybody needs to hear so they can learn about abortion. I mean, I think we just need to learn more about it because nobody talks about it. You know, back in the 1980s and 90s, it was talked about, but somewhere in the 90s, we stopped talking about it other than politically, which is not any help to anybody, really. And so this educational panel, again, taking place Thursday... That's going to be at 6.30 p.m., from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Crosswinds Church. That's at 1660 Friesman Road in Livermore. Is there any cost to this? No. It's so free. Absolutely free to the public. And if folks want to get more information, is there available info, uh, details on the Healing Tears website? I think it's under events on the Healing Tears website. And you could call Amy... Um, at 925-951-7192. It's just if someone near you has had an abortion and struggled with it, or if you've had an abortion and you'd like to hear people tell kind of their experience, um, it's just a very safe place to come and learn a little bit more about how to get free from the pain and maybe how to help a friend or encourage a friend if you know someone. So it's it's really a wonderful evening, and I encourage anybody to come who would like to learn more about getting free and getting getting healed and, and and just getting free from this that most people carry around with them the shame and the um, pain and the guilt and the because because they just keep it buried there's another dynamic to this and that is for those that are aware of the impact 
that abortion has and have always wanted to be involved in ministry that reaches out and provides hope and healing, uh, coming and learning um, how you can get involved with the Ministry of Healing Tears can be a great opportunity. Again, this is going to be Thursday, coming up just a couple of days, Thursday, January the 25th. It'll be at 6.30 p.m., hosted at Crosswinds Church in Livermore. And if you go to the events page, you can get details healingtears.org. That's healingtears.org. Or you can call area code 925-951-7192. That's 925-951-7192. And our thanks to Sharon Landis, the founder and executive director of Healing Tears, for that update. Also, while it's at the top of my mind, don't forget uh, this coming weekend, Saturday, is going to be the 14th annual Walk for Life West Coast in San Francisco. And uh, looks like we're going to have the uh, wet weather behind us, so I hope you're going to be a part of all that. Details available on the web at walkforlifewc.com. That's walkforlifewc.com. All right, we're going to talk a bit about education, but first let's get educated on traffic. We've got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's fairly common. Folks go out, and because it's their old alma mater or they're aware of uh, maybe a school that's gotten some good rankings somewhere, somehow, that they think uh, they're doing the right thing, or because it has a tuition that begins at, you know, $21,000 per week, that it must be the right place to send their kids, because, you know, the more we spend for a car, we typically get a better quality car, better quality house. Is that necessarily true, though, when it comes to a better quality education? Well, my guest in this segment of the program might uh, beg to differ with that. In fact, we're going to talk about how to choose the right college. There is a website, by the way, that you need to know, jot down, and uh, bookmark called collegeguide.org that gives you insights on to some of the best and worst colleges of the U.S., the reasons why, and most importantly, it's not always what you think they ought to be. Now, if you're someone that typically picks up a copy of U.S. News and World Report, a magazine to which I subscribed for many years, and you think that that's the single place to get information, let me dispel that myth right now. John Zimrick joins us on the program. And, John, talk to us a bit about the latest report now, a look at choosing the right college that gives some insights that parents, in fact, uh, might run kind of contrary to what they've otherwise heretofore believed about certain schools. Yes, yeah, so our emphasis is on showing up what's really going on at these colleges. We, we, we're an organization, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, that's existed since 1953. It was founded by William S. Buckley um, immediately after he wrote his famous book, God and Man at Yale, where uh, he was disturbed by just how anti-American and anti-God he found his experience at Yale University, which he would have expected to be a kind of bastion of of. Christianity and patriotism, given that it was one of the founding colleges of the United States. But he was quite surprised at what he found. So the Intercollegiate Studies Institute was founded as a kind of support group for students of religious faith, of patriotic values, uh, committed to market economy and to traditional values. And it connects students and faculty across the country as committed to those things. We use our co- network of contacts associated with all these schools to tell us what's really going on on the campuses. And we use that to produce our biannual 1,000-page report on the leading 130 colleges in the country. 
Some of the information that you're presenting really, as we say, kind of runs contrary to to popular belief. Uh, a lot of the, the, the popular rankings, I, I would suspect, are based on the name, the prestige, the amount of money that they're charging. But that's not always indicative of the quality of instruction, is it? No, not at all. In fact, uh, sometimes it's almost the, the inverse of that. You'll find that at the most prestigious and expensive schools, they're paying the professors primarily to do research and to come up with elaborate and sometimes esoteric academic studies that only two or three hundred people in the whole world will ever read. Now, that's fine in the natural sciences or in engineering, but in literature, really, do we need the 400th book in the last two years on Shakespeare? Or even worse, do we need books on really esoteric subjects such as like lesbian influence on graphic novels? Um, well, you'll find that the best professors at these schools often spend most of their time on research while teaching is relegated to graduate teaching assistants, you know, people working on their Ph.D. All right. That said, one of the, the things that you outline inside of this survey, and again, a lot of the information available on the web at collegeguide.org, is this idea that some of the best-known so-called prestigious schools turn out to be train wrecks. What do you mean by that? By train wreck, we mean a place that has a lot of potential, but has many millions of dollars in resources, that is squandering them on political activism or on esoteric subjects or on uh, building elaborate, comfortable student lounges so that the students can, can treat the school like, like a, a resort. Um, and, and several schools we identified, uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which you know might sound like a nice Methodist school, but in fact is entirely secular and one of the most anti-Christian and and, and I have to say, um, licentious colleges I've ever heard of. Not only are the dormitories co-ed and the bathrooms co-ed, even the dorm rooms are co-ed. Every dorm room can potentially be co-ed, so couples can hook up on the college's dime in the college's dormitory. And the school school is a gay lesbian student center that has a lending library of, of really sadistic pornography. It's just staggering what goes on at a school named for a man like John Wesley, and that parents are paying $40,000 a year so that their kids can be exposed to this. Why does a lot of this information tend to elude some of the more traditional resources, and I don't want to pick on U.S. News and World Report, but why does some of this backstory about, uh, you know, not just the, the, the rankings in terms of the caliber of education, but the, the intellectual atmosphere, the quality of instruction, student life, the, the, what goes on behind the scenes, why does so much of this tend to sort of elude some of the perhaps better-known ranking systems? Well, because they don't have an overt philosophy of education. They're just looking at the numbers. They're trying to be value neutral. And in that way, they're accepting the kind of relativistic philosophy that underlies so much of education. We have an overt educational philosophy. It is the traditional liberal arts mission that helped create the American college system that uh, John Henry Newman talked about in the idea of a university, um, that the Jesuits used in forming their colleges, that the Protestant reformers used in forming Yale and Harvard and Princeton. We're willing to say, yes, we choose one set of values over another. This set of values seems to us more in consonance with the Western tradition. So we are going to choose schools that do a better job of reflecting that tradition. All right, with all that said, you're ranking everything from the intellectual atmosphere, quality of the instruction. Uh, do, you, do you take into consideration the political bent of the school as well? We do. We, we, we look for schools where 
there is not a uniform, monolithic, typically liberal or feminist or multicultural atmosphere that would make conservative or Christian students feel unwelcome. Um, it's a really widespread problem that colleges are just not wholesome places where you can feel free to express your ideas and, and the values you live by. And, and universities are supposed to be a place of free exchange, but they've increasingly become places of indoctrination. So we highlight schools where they aren't necessarily conservative or Christian, but they are open. They, they have academic freedom. Students can feel free to express their views without fear of being graded down or expelled or prosecuted by the school for, for, for saying what they believe. And that's, a, that's not as universal as you would hope, that kind of academic freedom. Academic freedom tends to cut just one way at most colleges. It cuts the left. There's also another uh, kind of a monster lurking in the background here in the room that a lot of folks tend to kind of ignore, and that is the notion that uh, quite often we, we fail to count the real cost. We look at sort of, okay, this is what the tuition is going to be. You also take a look at uh, the average expense that students will have in terms of student loans and the ongoing indebtedness too, don't you? I think that, yes, the most important number to look at, because, you know, a lot of schools have high tuition and a lot of financial aid, and they cancel out. The thing to look at is the average student loan debt of a recent graduate. That tells you, that's where the rubber hits the road. The average American student graduates with a debt of $25,000. That's more than most of them will earn upon graduation. That's such a weight to be carrying. That's such a, that's the kind of thing that slows down people's attempts to form families or to get married. It certainly prevents them from owning homes and, and starting a nest egg. So that's the kind of challenge we'd rather see people not have to face as recent college graduates. Folks want to get more information. Uh, we've mentioned about the website, collegeguide.org. Right, and the book we published, Choosing the Right College, which is available from Amazon.com and at major bookstores. Excellent. Again, Choosing the Right College, an invaluable resource. And again, through Amazon.com, the usual suspects as well. Details, too, on the web at collegeguide.org. And our thanks to John Zamrick for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's an interesting number that at certain levels should be a wake-up call for all of us. Last five years, nearly one out of every two U.S. nursing homes were cited for a variety of violations, most of them having to do with neglect or mistreatment. And you say to yourself, well, I'm sure glad that's not me. Well, <laughs> if you're a baby boomer born between 1946 and 1964, and there are 80 million of us, 1,000 a day reach retirement, our time is coming. What's the old phrase? You'll reap what you sow. These conditions that we're seeing in nursing home facilities across America today, again, nearly half of them have been cited for violations of neglect and mistreatment. Someday we may be calling those places home. So being aware of what's going on is critically important. And quite frankly, as we've seen in the news in the last week with the arrest of these two monsters... David and Louise Chirpin, and the child abuse that they were systematically involved in against their own flesh and blood, 13 kids overall, points to the fact that there are issues at each end of the spectrum. 
We're going to spend some time today helping to answer the question, who's looking out for America's abandoned, abused, neglected children and elderly? That's the question raised, too, in the pages of a new book called Guardianship Reality. And joining me is the co-author of this new book. He is a healthcare ethics consultant, has worked as a professional guardian, and joins us now to discuss the content. Fernando Gutierrez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Greg. Happy to be on your show. You know, they ought to be very alarming numbers, particularly, as I say, for those of us that are baby boomers, realizing that on average, according to the statistics we've seen so far, one out of every two of us will wind up spending at least some time in a elder care facility, be that independent living or assisted living or skilled nursing facility. And given the fact that uh, one out of every two facilities has been cited for some level of violation of neglect or mistreatment ought to be very alarming for everyone. It is, and the sad outlook is that, and you hit it on the nose, the baby boomers, there will not be enough, in my opinion, enough clinicians to help us once we get older, especially those of us who are going to have some serious health issues. And, of course, you know, if we've watched the challenges of parents or grandparents growing older, we realize that the the potential for not only problems but abuse is uh, pretty pretty significant. And as your book, um, co-authored with Robert Fertig, points out, it really is at both ends of the spectrum, isn't it, in terms of age? It is. And I'm excited about the book that I co-author with Robert Fertig, because not only do we tell our readers what to look out for, we actually tell them how to handle the issues that um, need to be asked and the questions actually that need to be asked. In terms of the real target audience here, um, who, who is the real person that benefits the most from a book like this? I would say it's the patient advocate, because they are the ones who have to do all the homework. Uh, once uh, someone gets into a nursing home, uh, they usually have some type of medical condition that limits their uh, maybe cognitive issues or mobility. And so they don't have the time or the effort to really uh, fight the fight, if I should say that. So it, 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 it falls on the shoulders of the patient advocate, whether that be a, a son, daughter, or uncle, aunt, or just simply a, a professional guardian who's looking out for the best interest. And, you know, this is, as you allude to, a real potential minefield here because the layers of complexity, not only in terms of methodology and the needs and, and you know, you get into these multifacets where it's not just caring for their physical well-being, it's caring for their emotional well-being, it's caring for their mental well-being, it's caring for their financial well-being. And then you add the layers of um, uh, regulations and laws. Uh, suddenly you find out that uh, if you find yourself placed in a position where you're taking on a guardianship or forced into a position where you have to take on a guardianship in order to care for a loved one, this is no easy task by any stretch of the imagination, is it? It's not. The factor is is that um, it's an emotional issue, especially when you're dealing with a loved one. Yet society and these facilities want you to make an informed, practical decision. And as human beings, we all know that emotions will always rule, overrule any type of rational decision-making. 
This is very true. And um, let, let's, let's get in then to some real specific details here. First, how did you first get involved in becoming a professional guardian? What happened was is that I had a nephew who was born with a seizure disorder, and I took it upon myself to educate myself as to medical terminology and medical protocol. And so when I went with my sister to these um, neurologists, I would question these um, white coats, white jackets, and say, hey, how about this treatment or what about another treatment? And I actually had one neurologist who said, I wish every parent was like you. And like anything else, if we were going to buy a new car, most people will spend more time researching the new car they're going to get than rather than looking out either for their own medical welfare or those of a loved one. And, you know, again, as we, we look at everything from uh, issues of children that are developmentally disabled or physically disabled that need a higher degree of, of care and attention, uh, there's also this big realm out there of individuals that are, on one hand, concerned and willing to provide care and look out for what's best for their loved one, um, but there are also people that are ready and willing and lined up to take advantage of them, aren't they? Yes, there is. There's, unfortunately, there's both sides of the spectrum. And if we mentioned it, and I've had experience, you know, sometimes it's not a, a family member who's the best patient advocate. Sometimes you actually have to hire someone privately, if it's possible, or get someone outside of the family to be that patient advocate who has that objective viewpoint and it's not held down by any emotional um, values or um, issues that were in the past years. Yeah, for example, some of the issues that I've been concerned with, uh, with uh, some of the new California laws, including physician-assisted suicide, and that is where, where do we draw the line between um, an individual who solely advocates for the best interest of the patient when that same individual potentially may uh, have benefits should that patient pass away? In other words, they are either a, a heir or um, have some financial gain should that individual pass away? And so now suddenly there's that big question of, well, in whose best interest are you really acting? It becomes a real ethical dilemma, doesn't it? It does, and I've experienced that many, many times. In fact, I've had um, patients that I followed that after they've passed away, the first question from a relative was, how much money do you think that you got? Mm-hmm. How was mom or dad? Yeah, it, it's the sad reality, I think, of our society and our culture today. And as we've seen in stories of the Turpins and, and other cases when it comes to elder abuse, sadly, the level of of attention, respect, and protection from a societal standpoint that these two potentially um, uh, delicate, fragile ends of the of the spectrum in life here in America, the, 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 the lack of total respect that they receive in our culture today is very alarming. And as I suggested in my opening remarks, ought to capture the attention of all of us. It's one thing to say, gee, I'm sure glad mom or dad is not in a retirement facility they're uh, receiving abuse from. Well, what happens when it's your turn? And what if your kids are not as kind to to you as you are to your parents? Don't think for a moment it can't happen, because as we're learning today from Fernando Gutierrez, it happens all the time. 
there are some challenges. There are also wonderful opportunities to do some good things in guardianship. We're going to talk more about what exactly guardianship is at both ends of the spectrum as our conversation with healthcare ethics consultant Fernando Gutierrez continues a look at guardianship reality. Who's looking out for America's abandoned, abused, neglected children and elderly? Back to more of our discussion right after this. 545, let's have a bit of a discussion with Michael Bennett about traffic on this Tuesday. Michael, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back 10 minutes away from 6 p.m. Our visit today with Fernando Gutierrez, co-author of a new book called Guardianship Reality. Who's looking out for America's abandoned, abused, neglected children and elderly? All right, when we talk about guardian position, uh, it's not only a list of of responsibilities and duties, but it's also a, a legal definition, is it not, Fernando? It is. What you have is you have court oversight over not only um, health care services, but also the financial end of it. And there, there's really a couple of things at play here. Um, it, it provides that, as you say, court oversight to make sure that this individual is taking a proactive responsible position in looking after the well-being of whoever the person is, be it a child or a a senior adult. So there is a system of checks and balances in that regard. Um, And people sometimes say, well, you know, I don't like the way my sister's looking after mom, so I'm going to have to go in and get guardianship. It's a lot more involved than that, though, isn't it? It's going to be a very, not only complicated matter in terms of the level of responsibility, but there's a lot of legal twists and turns in this, too, isn't there? There is, and there's lots of expense. As a uh, registered guardian in the state of Florida, I always tell potential um, family members, to try to avoid guardianship because there are court fees, there are attorney fees, and if you want to move your mom to another facility, you have to get permission from the courts. It is a last resort, and again, as a registered guardian, I I am not a fan of it unless it's the only option, and it should be the last option. Well, let's talk about when it becomes an option. Let's assume for the sake of discussion that those that are eardropping or or, or, um, eavesdropping, rather, on our conversation today are ones that have a point of concern. And let's delineate here. This is not just a matter of a simple difference of opinion. In other words, uh, you think that your mother ought to be in a home care facility in the north end of town because it's convenient to where you live, and your sister thinks that she ought to be in the south end of town because it's closer to where she lives. We're not talking about that. We're we're talking about a profile of, of an individual. Uh, it may be a um, close family member or a clo- close friend of the family, rather, or a family member that has concerns about the, the overall well-being of either a child or an adult that may potentially need court involvement. How do you decide whether or not this is something that even comes into play? What's the criteria where a court comes in and says a guardian, either within the family or a professional guardian like yourself, needs to be appointed? Usually, in my experience, if you have siblings that are not in concert and working together, all it takes is one of the siblings to tell the judge, as you mentioned before, I'm, I don't, you know, trust my sister, or I think my brother should put her in another place. 
and the court doesn't like confusion. They don't like disputes, and that's why they'll bring in a third-party professional guardian who's basically a referee. But usually the case is, is that family members just can't get along, and if they could get along, then we wouldn't even need the guardianship courts. But the fact is is that there's too many siblings out there that are have motives. It could be a money motive. It could be that they were never maybe loved by mother and now they're getting back at mother or they always hated their sister. It could be so many factors that are involved. And it's sad to say is that the ultimate loser is the loved one who has the need to go into a nursing home. Now, clearly, this is a different scenario for minor children than it is adults. Is there another piece of wisdom behind all of this, Fernando, in terms of then while we are still healthy, while we are capable physically and most importantly mentally to make decisions for ourselves that we need to take the necessary steps in order to in some way uh, provide for our care when the time comes that we can't care for ourselves. And of course, this goes to things like a durable power of attorney for health care. It goes to things like having um, a living will in place. And and I suppose then two directives as well in terms of um, what you want in maybe a uh, a DNR or what you don't want or uh, the the level and, and quality of, of care that you you would like should the time come that you can no longer make your, your those decisions for yourself? Is that stuff that we really need to be? And I know a lot of folks, gee, they don't even want to think about their own burial, let alone thinking about having to live incapacitated as uh, an adult with maybe uh, Alzheimer's or dementia. But I guess that's a reality we really need to be thinking of while we can, isn't it? It is. And it's not necessarily that your son or daughter would be that best person to fill that patient advocate. And that's what I call guardians, patient advocates, and so you have to do your homework. It has to be somebody with a strong personality, one that's um, persistent, one that is demanding, and not all people have that personality, and I always tell um, others and prospective family members that if you're not upsetting a doctor, a facility, the pharmacy, you're not doing your job, because your number one job is to advocate for that patient, mother or father, whoever it is, and guess what? You will gain enemies because of that advocacy, because nobody's going to do it unless you do it. This is extremely true. And so toward that end, just based on your experience, what you've seen go on in families, the kind of abuse that has come to your attention through your position, walk me through, and obviously we're not going to get through every aspect of what's covered uh, in great detail in the book, but if you had to come up off the top of your head, uh, Fernando, with, with maybe five or six top things that people need to be aware of, what would they be? Well, if you're looking for number one, um, there should be some type of family meeting that you can choose, first of all, the right persona person that has that persona in order to be persistent. And it may be someone outside of the family. And I have been appointed by uh, many senior citizens, and they've introduced me to their um, sons and daughters and say, hey, this is the person who I'm confident with and that can make those decisions and is independent. That's one of the most critical things is to have someone decide for you what's best for you and again it, it takes that 
different persona of that person. And I, as I mentioned before, even in the book, sometimes uh, most people will pick either a family member, but sometimes that family member is not the best choice. And that's why we have these issues where family members steal from each other and then the courts get involved, uh, a big mess. But that's the most critical thing. You have to interview people and you have to pick the right person. How do you go about picking that right person? And I ask that question because I've seen cases where uh, mom or dad has a favorite son or daughter, and while that might be the favorite son or daughter for whatever the reason, they may not necessarily be the most capable nor the most responsible. Yeah, what I I say is um, when that time comes, when it's near that time, is you have to uh, become knowledgeable. You have to do your homework. You know, go out and visit nursing homes, um, ask them, and and they will tell you. Go. How many guardians you have here? How many patient advocates that are not family members are helping the patients in your facility? And they're more than happy. They always tell you. You know, we have this individual. Uh, you might want to call them and see if they'll meet your needs. But you would have to do your homework. And again, I I, I can't stress this more is that when you are buying a car, you spend more time researching the type of automobile, but when it comes to someone's health or someone else's, it's like we just take it for granted and we just sometimes accept whatever the doctors or the facilities say, and that's why we're in the mess that we're in because we have to be more active. We have to be proactive. And sadly, a lot of times it just comes down to what's available, what's affordable. But what you're suggesting is that it, it really requires a, a lot more serious attention and questions. It is. And again, that emotional factor clouds so much of our rational decision making. And it takes a really a sit down meeting with the other siblings, if you have other brothers or sisters, and um, with the uh, with the patient if they still have cognitive ability to just start this conversation but like um death you know nobody wants to talk about it yet it's inevitable for all of us this book can essentially be a guidebook whether you find yourself in the guardianship position for a needy minor child or for an adult um, much of what is in here can walk you through not just the the moral dilemmas but also the legal minefield of guardianship. Uh, the new book, by the way, uh, published by Author House, and you can get information available and order online through the usual suspects, Amazon, or through ethicsforhealthcare.com. That's the number four, ethicsforhealthcare.com. Again, the book, Guardianship Reality, Who's Looking Out for America's Abandoned, Abused, Neglected Children, and elderly co-author Fernando Gutierrez. Fernando, thank you so much for the time and the insights today. Six o'clock from KFAX. They're going to ask us to make a little room here for Michael Bennett. So we're going to do that right now, give you a look at traffic here, and uh, we'll take a look at some headline news too. But first, that traffic. Let's see what's going on. Michael Bennett from the KFAX Traffic Center. What's up?